Morning, guys. Um, welcome to the first podcast for this lockdown era. I hope you guys are all doing really well. Um, basically, what I want to talk to you guys about is the PowerPoint that's been put on the classroom, which is eugenics in America. And essentially, from all of the content that we've covered, you need to finalise what you want to do for your research uh, project. So logistically, by the end of this week, you need to decide what aspect of this topic of scientific racism that you want to do. Um, There's many options, and I will discuss those at the end, but I will talk us through this PowerPoint. So if you load that up, Eugenics in America, the first... Um, the first slide has a lovely picture of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton matched together. Um, so let's go from there. So the slide starts um, talking about a specific era in the United States uh, known as the Progressive Era um, and also discussed as being this idea of progressivism. Um, we've mentioned perhaps in the past about uh, New Zealand's stance on that and how we were trying to be the most progressive country in the world. And in doing so, uh, it led to some of those policies that discriminated specifically against the Chinese um, and those who were seen to be um, undesirable. So the progressive era, basically the 1890s to the 1920s, um, some of its features are things like industrialization. There's a lot of uh, immigration into the United States, and this is going to cause um, a series of issues. Um, one of the key things about this era is that it, uh, it leads to a reliance on science to solve social issues. So where eugenics is coming through, um, it's getting a lot of um, support from many of the key people in charge. We've looked at people like Winston Churchill in the United States. Um, we have the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Institute who are going to bankroll, give a lot of money, support to eugenics to help it flourish and get off the ground. Uh, in the UK at the same time, there was what was known as the Edwardian Age under King Edward. And those were sort of seen as the golden years in Britain where it was really thriving and becoming the, the global superpower that wouldn't start to dwindle until after the First World War. We have a look here at the Carnegie Institute, who in 19, uh, sorry, 2014, you can see there was valued at $980 million. President Roosevelt at the time had donated a total of $22 million to this uh, institute. There were serious contributions made to the eugenics movement, and Charles Davenport especially with his laboratory at the Cold Spring Harbour um, in New York. That was where a lot of the testings, a lot of the analysis of archives was performed. Now, they were involved with eugenics until 1944, when a lot of the information coming back from Germany was unveiled, and the support behind eugenics generally started to, to dwindle. Um, the Rockefeller Foundation, very similar there. There was an oil tycoon family. They funded various German eugenic programs as well, um, including, including sorry, the laboratory where Joseph Mengele worked before he went to Auschwitz. The, the German equivalent was known as the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. 
and it was funded heavily by American institutions like the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, this was key to sort of getting eugenics off the ground. Without this economic funding, you know, they weren't able to distribute the information that they had found. They weren't able to get access to a lot of resources. It was one of those things that you needed to have the bank rolling um, to support it. So in terms of you know, factors that enabled eugenics to grow, the economic factors are essential in um, getting it off the ground. Um, Charles Davenport, we sort of looked at a, a little bit. He's the sort of the father of eugenics in the United States. Um, yeah, there's a couple of quotes there that you can see from him. Uh, I believe in such a selection of immigrants as shall not tend to adulterate our national germplasm with socially unfit traits. So adulterating our national germplasm with socially unfit traits. That's how they looked at people coming in from Eastern Europe, people coming in from Asia, people coming in from the Middle East, that they had these unfit traits. And you see similar language that's used in New Zealand over the time frame as well. This could be something that you look at, like policy, um, joint policy and between you know, Australasia or United States, Britain, how they dealt with immigrants and what was the, the backbone or the, the reasoning behind that. Uh, so he, he founds the ERO, the Eugenics Record Office, in 1910, and he was the director at the laboratory at Cold Spring Harbor in New York from 1904. Um, as you can see there, a PhD in biology from Harvard, he was a very well-educated man, and the people behind eugenics are the top echelon of their respective fields. He meets Galton in London, he falls in love with this idea of eugenics and he comes back to United States looking at trying to change a bunch of these issues that were causing social problems for the country. As you can see there, things like alcoholism, criminality, feeble-mindedness, um, low intelligence, manic depression, etc., etc. Um, now he held two editorial posts at two influential German journals. Um, both of which were founded in 1935 and 1939. He's in constant conversation with those at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, and um, he basically provides the blueprint where Germany is going to use the, not only the sterilization programs, but also the euthanasia programs later down the track. Um, one of the fellow eugenicists was a guy called Harry Laughlin, who we'll see as well. He also plays a large part in spreading eugenics. Um, he was the superintendent of ERO. Prior to that, he'd been a teacher and a principal. And where he comes in, he provides some significant analysis and two key things for us. So in 1924, there is an Immigration Act. And this Immigration Act was designed to try to limit the annual number of immigrants who could be admitted from any country into the United States. Um, he was very smart with what he did here. So he used the figures from 1890, which is before the bulk of the immigration um, waves that came through. So he basically said, if you were a New Zealander and you wanted to come to the United States, the amount of New Zealanders that could come were 2% of the number of people living in the United States who were from New Zealand in 1890. So despite the fact in 1924 there would have been a higher population of these people, 
he's taken it back to 1890. So um, in doing so, he's going to severely limit the amount of people that can, that can come into the country. In fact, he's going to outright ban the immigration of Arabs and Asians. And as we see in New Zealand, that was essentially what they were trying to do there also. Um, so quite shocking when you think about it like that. Totally, um, totally reducing the people coming in from the country there. So Laughlin, his key interest was to aid compulsory sterilisation. Um, and when we talk about sterilization these days, people who get sterilized, whether they get their, you know, women who get their tubes tied or men who get their, um, get the snip, so to speak, they do it voluntarily. Um, these sterilizations that we're talking about are involuntary. So it's very intrusive and it goes against their natural human rights. Um, and it's going to have some pretty drastic effects, uh, when we look at it. So, Laughlin drafts a model, and his model is basically looking at, he goes into, uh, you know, mental asylums, he looks at schools, he sees the trends that people have in terms of passing down these traits, um, he believes that the feeble-minded, the insane, criminals, epileptics, alcoholics, blind people, deaf people, deformed people, indignant people, they should all be sterilized compulsorily. Um, now, this, this, this law or this um, model law that he contributes is actually passed in 18 states uh, across the United States. So it shows the sort of the vast nature of um, or how mainstream eugenics was. Now, the Reichstag, the government of Nazi Germany, passed the law um, very similar to the one that, um, that Laughlin's come up with. And their law was called the Prevention of Hereditary Disease Offspring. So this was in 1933. This was one of the first pieces of legislation that Hitler decides to pass. And based on this model, between 35,000 and 80,000 people are going to be sterilized in the full year alone. And you know, over 350,000 people are going to be sterilized. This is in Germany, um, based on this law. Um, another country in a Scandinavian country that, that performed uh, a scary number of sterilizations was Sweden. It was something like sixty to seventy thousand people were involuntarily sterilized um, in the country. So it's you know it's it's pretty widespread. New Zealand, we didn't take the sterilization road. We discussed discussed it in legislation. We discussed it in parliament. We decided that it was better to put people or segregate them from society and put them into institutions such as Seacliff where under the care of nurses and the superintendent, they weren't actually able to breed anyway. So what's the point in doubling up with that? Um, in saying that, there were still, um, still instances of either desexing, which was removing the genitals or removing the sexual organs, um, and sterilizations. It was also used as not only as a measure to stop from breeding, but also a measure to stop, you know, um, acts of, you know, sort of, sexual violence or sort of, you know, they were looking at it as almost like a demonic factor if somebody was overly sexualizing things, etc., etc. So Laughlin, who contributes to these sterilization awards, uh, in 1936, he's presented a degree by the University of Heidelberg in Germany um, on the science of racial cleansing. So he's celebrated in Germany. You know, he, he he's one of the backbones of German eugenics. Um as an American, and that was something that always surprised me. 
when I was learning about it. Um, so we looked at eugenics being positive and negative. The positive of eugenics was the idea to breed, um, to contribute to society in the future using you know, the promotion of good genes. And I think in that respect, a lot of people can get on board with eugenics. It's where the negative side of things comes in. So rather than just promoting the breeding of people with good traits, we're actually going to stop people with perceived bad traits from breeding. From culture to culture, there's a lot of differences in what constitutes bad genes. You know, in, the, in Britain, it might have been, if you were from the, you know, the Cockney, as they were calling it, race, um, in another part of the world, it might be based on skin colour, it might be based on some other sort of cultural differences or religious differences, etc. So this emergence of negative eugenics, um, it went along side by side with American population growth um, as they were getting not the quality of people, but the quantity of people was on the rise, and that was a, a scary thing. Um, so race-based immigration restriction was a remedy for what was basically it's called race suicide. By allowing all of these migrants into the country, you were committing race suicide. The whites were seen to be dying out. And this is where the 1924 Immigration Act became really uh, popular and was obviously passed. Roosevelt, the president, described it as the greatest problem of civilization. Um, and again, we can see that it was um, a significant problem. I've mentioned in class before, economically, 1908, there was an introduction of the minimum wage. The minimum wage was introduced for two reasons. Firstly, it was to deter prospective immigrants. And secondly, it was to remove the unemployable who were thus identified and could be segregated and sterilised. So essentially what that means is the first point, deterring prospective immigrants. If you don't have a minimum wage, employees or hiring um, immigrants for very, very low wages. You know, it was basically slave labour. And they could do that because the immigrants couldn't get work elsewhere. So what happened was a lot of um, European or, you know, Native American-born whites, uh, they weren't able to get jobs. So they introduced the minimum wage, which gave, I guess, hope for white people to compete with the immigrant workers. And although we like to think of it as, you know, we want to pay these people better, that was not the reason for it. It was to try and eliminate employees from high, uh, employers, sorry, from hiring migrant employees. Um, once that was settled, you could see who couldn't be employed. You could see which parts of society weren't able to be employed because they were either feeble-minded or unskilled. And once we had identified them, we could go, right, this group of people shouldn't breed because they can't even work. They can't produce anything for society. So thus, economically, things like this minimum wage in 1908, they filtered the fit and uh, they created a more productive workforce. And again, this ties in with the idea of the progressive era. Eugenics itself was, we've mentioned it, extremely mainstream. It was popular in basically all non-Catholic countries. Um, United States, over 376 separate colleges had a uh, eugenics course. Um, initially, both black and white supported positive eugenics, and it was heavily supported by um, people in the mainstream. We've got um, Alexander Graham Bell, H.G. Wells, who was the writer. We've talked about Churchill and another social scientist, a woman called Helen Keller, 
who was both blind and deaf. Um, I guess some of you in my class wish you were that way inclined at some points too. Um, carrying on, um, just pushing forward a little bit, we have the idea of miscegenation and sterilization. So they were trying to stop mixed people from breeding. So the mixing of different racial groups through marriage, cohabitation, sexual, sexual relations or procreation. This was first put into law in 1896 in Connecticut, which was the first state to enact marriage laws that had some sort of eugenic agenda or criteria. Michigan followed that in 1897. One of the most significant points was uh, in 1907 in Indiana, they passed the one of the first state um, legislation laws that was to promote voluntary, oh, sorry, involuntary um, sterilization. Um, and that was sort of what got the ball rolling. Once you have one state that passes a law, then it's like a domino effect for the others. So after 1907, we get to 1909, California passes their law. Now, California is going to be sort of the, the epicenter for sterilizations in the United States, where approximately one-third of the 60,000 sterilizations occurs. So the 20,000 sterilizations occur in California alone. Um, sort of the untold story here is that it's women who are potentially or particularly targeted. You might be thinking, why are women targeted the most? Well, they're the ones who actually carry the children. So you've got to sort of put your, put your glasses on, the contextual glasses on from, from this day and age and see that back then, not only was there a lot of what we would determine as to be sexism, but also women were heavily targeted here. It was almost like it was easier to have them sterilised than it was to sterilise men because they had a lesser stance in society. So in total, there were 32 states who had eugenic programs. Um, now, heading back to our, our man, Harry Laughlin, he, I mentioned that he contributed in two ways. One was that he, he contributed in this 1924, sorry, 1924 Immigration Act. He also gets involved in this very significant case um, in 1927 called Buck versus Bell. So Buck versus Bell was a story of a woman called Kerry Buck. Now Kerry Buck had um, been she had been raped as a child, and because of this, she had um, given birth. And the idea was that she was this feeble-minded woman who was sexually motivated, sexually driven, and that she um, she had this child basically out of wedlock. Um, because of this, she was um, used as an example of why volunteer, involuntary sterilization was constitutional. So it goes to the court, Harry Laughlin, having never met Kerry Buck, uh, Kerry Bell, sorry, she goes, um, he goes into the courtroom and he provides a whole bunch of evidence showing why this woman is, you know, mentally unstable. Again, having never met her, um, and the, the judge he rules, and his famous quote of his is, three generations of imbeciles are enough," and therefore she is sterilized. And once you have a case like this, it means that it doesn't matter where you stand. If you're trying to fight against being sterilized, you can't. It's been proven to be constitutional. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Imagine that. Imagine having a judge say that. Um, so anyway, this is a significant case. She's, uh, she's used 
and abused essentially poor Carrie Buck and that's what happens so that was Laughlin's other contribution um, and I'm not really doing it a significant amount of justice but again if you're interested in law these sort of cases are really um, are really interesting ways that you can sort of frame your research project if you're going to do it that way um, just carrying on there California eugenics as we've said, 20,000 people there were sterilised, started in 1909. Um, economically, the state wanted to save the money that they were spending on welfare. And countries are trying to do this all the time. They had a high number of Mexican, Indian and Asian populations that were deemed to be totally undesirable. So they did a few things here. They One, they limited the number of children for whom a woman on welfare could get state support. So once you have a certain amount of children, you can no longer get wealth, extra welfare for. Number two, they were coercing drug-addicted women to surrender their reproductive capacities. So if you were a drug addict and you were caught by the police, um, they would say, well, look, we will, we'll let you off the hook here if you're sterilised. So we'll sterilise you and then you can go back on the streets free. The third thing was forcing contraception um, use as a term of probation. So if you were in prison and you wanted to, to get out, um, what they could do is give you your probation so that you can go out back into public, but in terms of what you needed to give up, that was going to be your ability to have children. So eugenicists really focused on these people in society who had no say. Um, the methods, the the actual process for being sterilised was a about a thirty minute um, surgery. Um, they, it's it, it's way less intrusive now, obviously, with technology, um, but back then it was rather intrusive. I talked about in class that, and this guy, Doctor Leo Stanley, he performed these surgeries on men, testicular surgeries, where he would remove the the, the testicles of the the criminal, for example, and um, had them transferred with uh, a deceased male who wasn't a criminal and see if that could um, actually change his manhood. The quote there, help a new ideal man emerge. Not only did they try with um, the, the, the testicles of non-criminals, but they actually went a step further and used animal testicles. Um, so very, very strange. Um, and again, these types of surgeries, the, the types of treatment in these asylums, the types of treatments in these, uh, in these jails, that might be something that you want to look at. Um, 1937, Fortune magazine, they found, oh, they had a poll that found that two-thirds of respondents su supported eugenic sterilisation. So two-thirds of their readers. 63% su uh, supported sterilisation of criminals with only 15% opposing. So it was something that was very heavily supported. Um, if you look at it in sort of three steps, the first step is to, to identify the people. Who are these people who are unfit? We want to segregate them from society. The second step is once they're segregated, what do we do with them? Do we keep them in the asylums like they did in Britain and New Zealand? Do they sterilise them like they did in, in USA and Germany? in um, Sweden and many other countries? Or do you go the next step, which is to euthanise those um, undesirables? Again, in New Zealand, they talked about it in Parliament with disabled children. Do we euthanise disabled children? 
Um, and this was something that was, was heavily contested, but um, was something that was nonetheless discussed. It was on their minds. Um, and one of the hurdles to that is obviously going to be policy, how um, it's going to be voted on, how we're going to get support, etc. And this is where, um, in Germany, they didn't have those, those same hurdles. With Hitler being you know, the, the dictator, he didn't have to have anything signed off. And, and I guess that was where eugenics was really able to flourish. Um, so euthanasia in Greek, it means good death. It's the practice of intentionally ending a life in order to relieve pain and suffering. And it was a method that was commonly suggested to get rid of the inferior populations. Um, a 1911 Carnegie Institute report mentioned euthanasia as one of its recommended solutions to the problem of cleansing society of unfit genetic attributes. So again, it's something that was really, really common, even if it was just in terms of a, of a potentiality as opposed to something that was actually going to be used. Now, the most commonly suggested method was to set up local gas chambers. However, many in the eugenics movement did not believe that the Americans were ready to implement a large-scale euthanasia program. So many doctors had to find clever ways of subtly implementing eugenic um, euthanasia in various medical institutions. So they couldn't outright just, just kill them. They had to do something different that wasn't so explicit. Um, so a couple of things that they did. In a mental institution in Lincoln, Illinois, um, they fed the incoming patients milk that had been affected with tuberculosis. Um, the reasoning was that genetically fit individuals would be resistant. Um, now, this is horrifying, but it resulted in 30 to 40% annual death rates. Um, and other doctors who you know didn't want to do that, they practiced euthanasia through various forms of lethal neglect. So they would just neglect to give medicine, neglect to give food to these patients, and they would die out. So it was sort of a slow burner in terms of um, euthanasia. Now, in the 30s, there was a major um, wave of portrayals of mercy killings across American um, media and film. And in 1931, the Illinois Homeopathic Medicine Association began lobbying for the right to euthanize imbeciles and other defectives. Um, so this was something that was really trying to be pushed in the United States. Um, overall, however, euthanasia, euthanasia was marginalized in the states, uh, motivating people to turn to forced segregation and sterilization, sterilization programs as a means for keeping the unfit from reproducing. It was almost as if the step to euthanasia was just a little bit too far. Um, Nazi Germany, uh, obviously they didn't have the same hurdles. So after the eugenics movement um, was well established in the United States, it spreads across the world. Germany is a country that um, at the time they, they had a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the key scientists, key philosophers, key architects, they're all coming out of Germany. Um, so they were really keen to pick up on these ideas from the United States to help continue their own progressive nature. So uh, California eugenicists began producing literature, and this literature was promoted um, and sent overseas, and German scientists and medical professions liked what they saw. You know, the Americans seemed to be putting this idea of eugenics into practice. 
By 1933, California had subjected more people to forceful sterilization than all the other United States combined. Um, and this forced sterilization program um, was, was really, the, the Nazis program was really inspired by California's and, and we can actually see Harry Laughlin's imprint, uh, imprint there with his, his uh, sterilization model. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation itself helped develop and fund various German eugenics programs, including the one that Joseph Mengele, the, uh, the doctor of death, who worked at Auschwitz and performed his gruesome activities. Um, so upon returning from Germany in 1934, more than 5,000 people per month were being forcibly sterilised. Um, and there's a quote here where the Californian eugenics leader Charles, Charles Goethe he bragged to a colleague, he says, you will be interested to know that your work has played a powerful part in shaping the opinions of the group of intellectuals who are behind Hitler in his epoch-making programme. Everywhere I sense that their opinions have been tremendously stimulated by American thought. I want you, my dear friend, to carry this thought with you for the rest of your life, that you have really jolted into action a great government of 60 million people. So 1934, um, heavy support there for the role that the US is playing in German eugenics. Um, Laughlin himself often bragged that his model, his law, was the one that had been implemented in 1935 in what was known as the Nuremberg Racial Hygiene Laws. Now, 1935, these laws were, they almost ended the 1936 Olympics, the Berlin Olympics. People were very hesitant to send, um, especially their Jewish athletes or athletes that were um, in a similar vein because the Nuremberg Laws did many things such as stopping the marriage of Jews and Germans and, and other sort of um, laws to do with sterilisation. Um, Laughlin, again, is awarded this degree by Heidelberg University um, and that goes on. Now unfortunately Laughlin because of financial issues he's unable to attend this in person um, but he proudly shared this award with colleagues afterwards. He said that it symbolised the common understanding of German and American scientists on the nature of eugenics so it was a big deal. <clears throat> um, so after 1945, however, historians began to attempt to portray the US eugenics movement as distinct and distant from the Nazi eugenics, and I think where the Nazis really started getting into what was known as Action T4, or their euthanasia policy, that was where they really tried to distance themselves from that. That was the use, the first use of gas chambers. Now, historian John Entine, he wrote that eugenics simply means good genes, and using it as a synonym for genocide is an all-too-common distortion of the social history of genetic policy in the United States. Now, according to him, eugenics developed out of the progressive era and not Hitler's twisted final solution. So I guess it is important to note that eugenics and the Holocaust are different, but there are some, some distinct connections there, especially in terms of the people who were used um, in the Action T4 um, euthanize, uh, euthanizing of those know, about 60,000 to 100,000 Germans were euthanized which, which seems minuscule compared to the amount that were killed in the Holocaust but nonetheless it's still um, a lot of deaths 
So these distinctions made it um, different from the Holocaust because eugenic policies are trying to promote the breeding of um, the positive traits. And what we see with the Holocaust is that it's about totally eradicating an entire race. There's nothing eugenic about that. The only connection there is the people that are involved. Um, so there's a lot to digest there, but that is essentially an overview of eugenics in the United States. Um, I'll have another update later in the week, a quick one, about what Action T4 really was and some of the policy that was included. But what I challenge you to start thinking about is when you're doing this research project, which is, is likely going to take four weeks of research, uh, and you need to be getting primary documents, you need to be um, really searching the internet and the archives for this information, you need to pick a topic that firstly has something to do with New Zealand. Now, obviously, eugenics and race does. Are you going to focus on insane asylums? Are you going to focus on something to do with the Enlightenment era? Are you going to focus on something to do with eugenic policy, immigration, you know, the white New Zealand policy, there's a lot there. So what I would suggest is you pick something that you're interested in, something that you don't mind researching for that period of time. And the third thing is that what you research, you're inevitably going to end up writing about for the second internal assessment. So it's got to be something that you're actually finding some finding interest in and that you understand um, along the way. So anyway, thanks for listening. I apologize for saying um like a million times, but that just tends to flow. I also apologize for the, my dog knocked over my can of vanilla Pepsi Max and uh, I, I had to hold my call there. But look, I hope you're all doing well. Please, um, please send me some messages. Um, keep, me, keep me going in terms of that if you've got any questions or queries. And uh, we'll go from there. So end of the week, we want to know what you're going to be doing as a research topic. You can go back into the David Irving thing. You could go, there's, there's so many things that you can do. So if you've got an idea, flip me an email and we'll go from there. All right. So thanks for listening. Stay strong.